Please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're back in our study of Romans chapter 1 this morning. It's a very well-known quote by A.W. Tozier. He once said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, Apparently, C.S. Lewis also read this quote, and he responded like this. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. That's a lot of words to basically say what God is thinking about right now is a lot more important than what we're thinking about. And what do you suppose God is thinking right now? And I don't mean what is God thinking about you personally. But as God looks down at all of his creation, and specifically he looks at humanity, men and women made in his image, what does he think about the way that we as a group are living on this earth? The things that we love, the things that we pursue. According to Paul in Romans chapter 1, God looks down on the earth, and generally speaking, he's angry. Now, I wonder if I had given you a vote on the way in, said, you know, um, I'm going to give you a choice. I've actually prepared two messages here. One's on the love of God, and the other's about the wrath of God. Uh, His anger and his judgment. Which one would you choose? Probably love of God. Uh, You know, I'd rather give one on the love of God, but the apostle Paul constrains us. That's not what he's talking about at this point in Romans chapter 1. And I want you to know we didn't break the air conditioner just to set the mood for a discussion of the wrath of God. Paul's just talked about how great the gospel is. But before he can really unpack that and show how wonderful the gospel is, he has to show how deep and dark the problem of sin is from which we are being rescued. And so the first thing that he's going to talk about in depth is the righteousness of God that's revealed in God's judgment. So, for those of you who may have uh, missed the first couple weeks, or maybe you're new to grace, I want to put all this in context for you and put it in the setting of the entire book of Romans. The theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. That's what Romans is about. And what we mean when we talk about the righteousness of God is this. God is righteous in who he is, and God is righteous in what he does. All that God is in his person, his character, his nature, his attributes, is righteous. Consequently, all that God does is righteous. If righteousness is a standard, God is that standard. His personality always measures up to that standard, and all his deeds consequently measure up to that standard. All the promises he gives are are consistent with that standard, and he is always faithful to fulfill those promises. That's what we mean by the righteousness of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses summarized it like this. He said, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright, is he. That is, all that God is and all that God does is righteous. It's perfect. So Paul summarizes that concept in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and then he's going to spend the rest of the book unpacking that. Read with me, if you would, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. 
Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Or in other words, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God by saving everyone who believes. What Paul is going to do in the rest of the book is actually unpack this whole concept of salvation and help us understand it's much broader than simply being rescued out of hell from the penalty of our sins. But salvation is actually, God's going to set everything right. Okay? He's going to come in and even put all of creation right again. He is going to fulfill all of his will for this creation, including humanity. So if I can summarize the big idea of Romans, I'd put it like this. God is proven right by making all things right through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is proven right by setting all things right through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to put this week in the context of where we're going in our whole discussion for the rest of the year, the book of Romans is broken into five parts. We just finished the introduction. We spent three weeks on the introduction because it's packed. There's a lot in it. The next section is the righteousness of God in judgment. We're going to spend this Sunday and then three more Sundays talking about judgment. I hope the air conditioner's fixed next week. So you hang with me the whole time, okay? Hang with me. Three weeks on judgment, actually four weeks on judgment. Why so many? Well, someday we can ask Paul, why so much time talking about judgment? I suspect, as I said, that we really can't understand the marvel of what God has rescued us from until we understand. What is it we've been rescued from? How deep and pervasive and damaging has been the effect of sin in our lives personally, but also in all of world history. Some of you guys are probably going to go buy a diamond soon. At least maybe your girlfriends are hoping so that you will. And when you show up, jeweler's going to pull out his wares and he's going to find the best diamond that kind of fits your criteria. He's not going to lay those diamonds on a dingy cloth. It won't be beige, it won't be white, it won't be dirty, it will be black. Black velvet. He's going to spread it out because then when he puts the diamond on top of that black velvet and the light is shining on it, wow, you're tempted to buy bigger. Because you see the glory of this thing against the dark backdrop. That's what Paul's doing. Okay? For three chapters, he spreads out the black velvet. God is righteous when he judges sin. Then he moves into God's righteousness in justification. How can God declare righteous such sinful people? Well, it's the work of Jesus Christ, a full and final payment. And we participate in that and enjoy that when we believe through faith. Third, God's righteousness and sanctification. Not only does he declare us righteous, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you possess the spirit of God and God is working to make you more like Jesus in your deeds, in your thoughts, in your words. That's going to be a long discussion of the power of God's spirit and a new identification with Jesus Christ. Fourth, God is righteous in history. You know, it's hard to see the righteousness of God as we look around. The world seems to be going in such an unrighteous direction. It's hard sometimes to understand the righteousness of God when we think God made all these promises to Israel, but so few from Israel now believe. 
What Paul is going to show in three chapters, 9 through 11, is that God is going to fulfill his promises to Israel. God is going to fulfill his promises through Israel to all of the nations. And God is going to, through those promises, set all of world history right. Chapters 9 through 11 are vindicating the righteousness of God in history. And then fifth, finally, God is righteous through our lives. Paul's going to have an extended discussion of... uh, What is the nature of the church now? Jew and Gentile in one body, and how do they live together in front of an unrighteous world in such a way that the world is drawn to the righteousness of God? That's how he's going to conclude the letter. So this morning, we're going to begin our first in a four-part series about the righteousness of God and judgment. It begins in chapter 1, verse 18. So I'd like for you to read with me there. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice what he says here. The wrath of God is revealed. It's present tense. Right now, he is revealing his wrath from heaven. In the future, he will also reveal his wrath when he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to judge the world. But that's the future. Paul's talking about the present. He says, right now, God is revealing his wrath. And he's revealing it against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. This phrase together covers all areas of sin. Our sin in our relationship with God, our sin in our relationships to to one another. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about everybody. As you get into chapter 1, he lists some very specific sins. And it's tempting to say, well, that's not me. He's not talking about me. He's talking about other people. That's why Paul spends three chapters. So you can find yourself somewhere in those three chapters. And he's going to end that section in Romans 3.23 by saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Another way of talking about the righteousness of God, his perfect standard that is himself, is his glory. And all have fallen short of that standard. And all, consequently, who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, by nature are under the wrath of God. What does he mean by wrath? You know, that is not a word that I use a lot in conversation. I don't talk a lot about wrath. And the connotation that comes to my mind when I think of wrath is, is uncontrolled anger. You know, I had a, a, a boss in one of the first jobs that I worked that he was wrathful. You know, it was very arbitrary. His anger was arbitrary. It was whimsical. You didn't know where it was coming from, how it was going to hit you. And he could walk in and say things that you thought, wow, man, that's really cruel. It's I don't know if it's true, but even if it is, I sure wouldn't say it like that. And then he'd take a lap around the store and he'd come back and praise you for something. You're like, wow, this is a really weird world I'm living in right now. That's wrath in my mind. But that's not the biblical concept. God is not whimsical or arbitrary. He's not unpredictable. Wrath is his settled indignation against sin. And it is entirely predictable based upon his anger, that when he looks on sin, he would show wrath. And what we're going to look at this morning is, what is God so angry about? And how is it that right now he is expressing that wrath in the world? Okay, so read with me again. Chapter 1, we're beginning verse 18 again, and read through verse 20. Why is God revealing his wrath? It says, right now, present tense, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God is angry because man has rejected his righteousness. God is angry because mankind, on the whole, has rejected the righteousness of God. And mankind has done that in two ways. First, by suppressing revealed truth. Our God is a God who longs to reveal himself. Our God is not a God who is trying to hide. He wants to be known. And as the psalmist said that Mark read earlier, he is revealing himself constantly in creation. That's Paul's emphasis in Romans chapter 1 as well. I want you to read with me again. Psalm chapter 19 begins like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky displays his handiwork. Day after day it speaks out. Night after night it reveals his greatness. There is no actual speech or word, nor is its voice literally heard, yet its voice echoes throughout the earth. Its words carry to the distant horizon. Notice what the psalmist says. Day after day it speaks. Night after night it reveals his greatness. It is a constant revelation of the greatness of God. It is a universal revelation of the greatness of God. There is nowhere that you can go that you can avoid creation. And it is a language that everyone can speak. Notice he says, it's not an actual word. It's not actual speech. Its voice is not literally heard, yet its voice echoes throughout the earth. It's a language that everyone can understand. It's a speech that's everywhere. It's unavoidable. The greatness of God in his creation. Specifically, Paul says in verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, remember, God by his nature is spirit. He is invisible. But he is still a person, and so he has attributes. He has a personality, and he has made them known. His invisible attributes, specifically, his eternal power, and his divine nature. What does Paul mean by that? His eternal power. Paul means that as you look upon creation, the only logical conclusion is that there is a cause for all of this, and that cause is very, very great. Every effect that we see in the world has a cause behind it. And if we were to look at our earth, or we were to look at the universe... The only logical explanation is there is someone great behind it. Because we see personality in this creation, it must be a personal God. And he must be great. His eternal power, that something exists rather than nothing. And his divine nature, that he is greater than I. Because I could not do that. His eternal power, his divine nature, and if I look even more closely, I see wisdom and intelligence and design. And Paul says these things should be unavoidable. They should be obvious. They should be the natural conclusion of a mind that is not bent by sin. That God exists, that he is greater than I am, that I am not God. His eternal power, his divine nature, and that he is wise and he is intelligent. And as Paul would say in his sermon in Acts chapter 14, that he is good. Because everything that we need to live on this earth, he has provided. Now around my house, uh, we have a lot of woods. 
and I will go walking through the woods from time to time. And sometimes as I'm walking through the woods, I'll look down and I'll I'll see these tiny little brass-colored orbs, perfectly shaped spheres. And when I pick one of these up, it never crosses my mind to say, what random forces of nature happen to come together at a particular point in time and create this brass-colored orb that happens to exist here in my woods. It never even crosses my mind. In fact, I see something that reflects this tiny bit of design, and I can immediately trace a series of cause-and-effect relationships, why that thing is in my woods. It goes like this. There's a company called Daisy, and they make a little thing called a BB, and they do it pretty well, so they're all pretty consistent, and they're little brass-colored spheres. And what happens with these orbs is my son goes and buys them. And then he carefully puts them in his red rider. And then he walks in the woods, cocks his BB gun and fires. And that's why this is here. And I can trace that entire string of events. Now, if I bring my son out into the woods and I say, why is this here? He might say, some random series of events conspired God. (laughs) And God, no, it's not God. It's it's, um, just randomly here they are. And he might say that. But that's not the logical explanation. That's not even a rational explanation. There's got to be design behind it. And if we were to walk further, my son and I, and I I happened to come upon my basketball with writing on it that I can read and understand, he might say, well, it was random forces of nature that got the ball out of the garage and into the woods. I said, I don't think so. I think there's cause and effect. And as I look on this thing, I see design. I don't think it just happened. If I take my son's hand and say, let's look into the stars. See how vast is the sum of them. No one can even number them. If they were to spend their entire life just counting, can't even measure the ends of the universe, would I naturally say, random forces conspired and somehow these things came to be? No. That's not the most rational explanation. Paul says, The only rational explanation is that God is and that he is powerful and that I am not him. Years ago, Albert Einstein, one of the greatest scientists ever, made this observation. He said, my religious feeling takes the form of a rapturous amazement of nature's law, which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systems of thinking and acting of human beings are an utterly insignificant reflection One of the greatest minds ever, as he studied the material universe, said there must be a God. Did he believe in Jesus Christ? No. But he could not deny the existence of God when he was intellectually honest. What Paul is saying is revelation in nature is so clear and so obvious that the only way a person could deny it would be to actively and energetically suppress the truth of God. Look at verse 18 again. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. To suppress means uh, to stifle or to restrain or to bury. They actively put it down. Years ago in the early 20th century, there was a French mathematician. He was a biophysicist, a scientist, but also a philosopher. And he set out to study the probability that a highly complex molecule, one of asymmetry, would, would form from natural processes, just from chance, that one single molecule would form. He wanted to discover how long would it take with random processes, just pure chance, 
How many years would be required to form one such molecule? According to his calculations, he discovered it would take 10 to the 253rd years. That's billions and billions and billions of years just for the formation of one molecule. This was his conclusion. He said, but let us admit that no matter how small the chance, it could happen. What he's saying is, he's still got a chance. One molecule could be created by such astronomical odds of chance. It could happen. However, one molecule is of no use. Hundreds of millions of identical ones are necessary. Thus, we either admit the miracle or doubt the absolute truth of science. He chose to say, let me admit the miracle. That though the probability is statistically speaking zero, I will bet my life upon the fact that it is just random chance that caused the existence of this universe so that I can safely reject the existence of God. The result, Paul says, is that everyone is accountable and no one can have an excuse before God. In other words, there is not a person who exists that will be condemned for lack of information. Okay? You hear me? There's not a person that will be condemned by God because they lack information. I cannot tell you how many times people have asked me, well, tell me, what about that person? You know, that aborigine, that person isolated, who's never heard about God, but who's genuinely seeking after God and wants to know God. What about that person? How can God justly judge that person? What Paul is saying here is there is no such person. There's not a person who is genuinely and sincerely seeking after God to whom God fails to reveal himself. God longs to be known, people. God is not hiding himself. And so what he does is he reveals himself in nature first. And he reveals his divine attributes, that he exists, that he is powerful. He reveals that he is good by giving what we need to live on this earth. And when people respond appropriately to what God has revealed in nature, he always gives more light. He always gives more revelation. The, the, the chronicles of world missions are filled with story after story after story of God going to people who are genuinely seeking him and giving them the light of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to say, what about the person who's genuinely seeking and God does not reveal himself? That is just a category that doesn't exist. In fact, the proliferation of world religions that we see is not evidence that people are seeking God. It is evidence that people are rejecting God. That's how God views it. And so that's the next topic that Paul moves to. Because people must worship, and if they reject God and the worship of him, they will worship something else. Notice with me, chapter 1, verse 21. It says, For even though they knew God, They did not honor him as God. That's a summary of verses 19 and 20. Nor did they give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The second thing that they did is they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged God for idols. Uh, One of the things that you'll notice if you read this section, verses 18 through 32, all in one sitting, is that uh, there's a a downward spiral or a progression of sin and its consequences. 
And that downward spiral really begins here to be described in verse 21, where it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks. I want you to think back to the garden for a moment. What happened with Adam and Eve? Well, they were tempted to not honor God as God. Satan came and said to Eve, Eve, why do you want to remain submissive to him? He's not good. In the day that you eat of that fruit, he knows that you will be like him. Why would you want to worship him as God? Because Eve, you are God. You are God. And so she did not want to honor God as God, nor give thanks. Satan came and said to her, has God really said you can't eat from any tree in the garden? At which point she should have said, whoa, stop for a moment. That is not what God said. You're misrepresenting his words and his character. God actually said, eat, eat, eat freely from every tree in the garden. Absolutely every tree is yours to consume except that one. And so what happened to Eve is rather than giving thanks for the whole garden, she became bitter that she didn't have the one tree. Do you think thankfulness to God is important in your spiritual life? Wow. This downward process of sin in Romans chapter 1 starts with saying, No, God, not your will be done, but my will be done. And not saying thanks. Thank you, God, for all that you have provided. I will tell you, literally on the way in this morning, my son and I had this conversation about thankfulness because he was really wrestling and struggling. And you know what? An ungrateful heart consumed his entire mind and it consumed his body. It was in his posture. He walked in like this and he was, you know, scowling. And we're having this conversation, talking about thankfulness. And I said, pal, you need to understand when I'm struggling and I'm wrestling, one of the first things that I do, I give thanks. And sometimes it's just force, but I stop and say, God, thank you. I'm not going to focus all of my attention on what I don't have. There are things I don't have, but I want them. And I can pray for them, but there's so much that I do have. Let me give thanks. And I begin to literally count them and list them. Sometimes I'll take out a piece of paper and write them down because it transforms my entire perspective. What happened with Adam and Eve and what infected all of humanity is they said no to God. My will be done, not yours. And they refused to give thanks for what they had and they wanted something they didn't have. And Paul says the, the first indication of that is false worship. Because we're made finite creatures. We're, we're small and we're weak and we're frail. We must worship. So if we don't worship God, we will worship something else. Notice what he says here, verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Now, this last year, we, we studied the book of Isaiah. I want you to turn with me. Keep your place here in Romans 1 and turn back to Isaiah chapter 44. One of the major sins that Isaiah confronted in the nation of Israel was their idolatry because they had rejected the righteousness of God. They said, no, no, our will be done. And they had not been thankful. Satan got a foothold in their life and idolatry crept in. And so Isaiah condemns that. Chapter 44. Read with me beginning in 14, verse 14 and I want you to, to hear the, the sarcasm in Isaiah's voice. 
He says, surely a man cuts cedars for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak. It doesn't really matter what kind of tree it is. He raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and he warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god. He worships it. He falls down. He makes a graven image and then he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and he's satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and he worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Now notice Isaiah's indictment. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and I eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I am falling down in front of a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Am I not an idiot? No, I can't even say it. I can't even see it. Because unrighteous decisions bend the mind. And that is one of the things that Paul is arguing here. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart. The center of their decision making became darkened. No one rejects God for purely intellectual or logical or scientific reasons. It's a moral decision. It's a moral decision. And I will tell you, I've seen time after time after time, I've seen students raised in Christian homes. They come to me and they say, you know, I'm really having serious doubts about God, about his existence, about his goodness, about a variety of things. And they say, what stirred me all up is I heard a prof say this in biology class, or I heard a prof say this in comparative religions class. But when I push a little further, I say, let's talk about your life and you, and where have you been, and where are you going? And if I push and push and push, inevitably we get back to the point that there was a moral decision that was made back here. At some point in time, they said no to God. Maybe God said, that's not a good relationship. That's not a healthy relationship. And they said, no, God. I want that more than I want you. And as a result of that moral decision, the heart became darkened. Okay? We say to ourselves, I'm not an idolater. I've got no blocks of wood in my house. I'm not bowing down before him. No silver or gold. The prophet said the fundamental issue of idolatry is idolatry of the heart. A couple years ago, Timothy Keller wrote a wonderful book called Counterfeit Gods. He made this observation. He said, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Do you love something more than you love God? Do you pursue something with more time and energy and money? 
then you pursue your love of God. That's an idol. And this is where the downward spiral of sin begins and progresses. When we say, no to God, you're not in charge of my life. And I'm not grateful for what I have. I want something other than what you have given. What you have given is not enough and I'm going to go find it. And when I go out and I find it, my heart will be set upon it and I will love it and I will worship it. And God says, I am revealing my wrath and pouring it out upon all unrighteousness and all ungodliness of men. I'm going to release you to the consequences of your sin. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, or you could translate that, the lie. The fundamental lie being, I can be God and make life work without God. Exchange the truth of God for the lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The consequence of man rejecting the righteousness of God is God releases man to the consequences of his sin. Three times in this section, verses 24 to 32, Paul is going to say, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. If I can put an image in your mind, imagine this. Uh, All of humanity is sitting in a boat. And that boat is in a rushing river, but there's a rope tied to the end of that boat. And God is standing on the shore and he's holding on to that rope. In his grace and mercy, He is holding on to that rope so that the boat doesn't drift downstream and go over the falls and be destroyed. God is holding on to the rope, but humanity is crying out saying, let go, let go. It's more fun in the river. We want to be there. We don't like what you have provided for us here in the boat. Let go. And God's wrath is expressed when he lets go. Someday God will actively intervene in human history, the day of judgment when Christ returns. But right now he is acting by revealing his wrath, by letting go. He made a universe and it reflects his nature, his character. It has moral order. There are consequences to sin. When mankind turns its back on God, there will be consequences. That is the wrath of God. God has let go. And it's really exciting and it's thrilling in the middle of the river. Until sometimes you realize, I have no paddles. And I'm hearing the falls. God, in his mercy and his grace, reaches out to that individual and pulls them back in. But for the vast majority of humanity, they say, let us finish the ride. God says, all right, I'll let go. And that displays itself in three areas. First is the worship of self. Read with me again verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. What I think Paul is referring to there specifically is that these people brought immorality into their very worship. If you look at a history of ancient religions, there was literally sexual immorality as a fundamental component of their religious experience with God. It was really dark. Look at the Canaanite religion in particular. They had a primary god. His name was Baal. Baal. It meant Lord. He was the most powerful among a whole pantheon of gods. And he had a consort. Her name was Astarte. Also translated Ishtar in other religions. And when the two of them had relations with one another, 
there was fertility on the earth. And people thought to themselves, well, how can we make sure the Baal and Astarte get together? You know what we can do? When we come together at the temple of Baal, we can have sexual relations and they'll be watching. That'll stir them up and that'll make them want to have relations. First illustrations of pornography. If they get stirred up, then they'll get together, then they'll send fertility because Astarte is the goddess of fertility and from her will come rains and fruitfulness on the lands. And so they validated immorality in the midst of their worship. Paul says you have dishonored your bodies because your body is made as a temple for God. It's a vehicle through which you worship God and instead you have made the body the object of worship itself. We don't have necessarily sexual immorality in worship in various religions that we come in contact day to day. But do we worship the body? You better believe it. Men and women, we live in a culture that worships the human body. If you have not noticed that, you are out to lunch. Okay? I read just this last week in 2010. In the midst of really difficult economic times, Americans spent $10 billion on plastic surgery. I guess times were bad in the plastic surgery industry. $10 billion on plastic surgery. We worship the human body. The human body is used to sell every product. Absolutely every product. Paul says this is a part of the downward spiral, the progression of sin and its consequences. A darkened mind doesn't understand what the body is for and prostitutes the body and worships the body. First, worship of self. Second, the perversion of self. Verse 26. For this reason, second, God gave them over. God gave them over again to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons due penalty of their error. Why does Paul focus here on homosexuality? It is not because homosexuality is so much worse than all other sins. It's because homosexuality represents so clearly mankind's rejection of the natural order of things. And because homosexuality has such, such deep effects on a person's self-understanding, what is more fundamental than, I'm Brian and I am a male? Fundamentally, who am I? Well, I'm a man, I'm male. There's male and there's female. There is a natural order of things. And this is an enormously significant issue in our culture. And so Blake and I, uh, this next week, are going to uh, pause on our progress in Romans and we're going to talk about homosexuality. So, parents, this is your heads up. If you feel a little uncomfortable, given the age of your kids, with them sitting in here during a discussion of homosexuality, we will have child care all the way up through sixth grade and then over in the youth room for junior high kids. Uh, But let me know. So if you don't want your kids here, there will be a place for them. But let me let you know. I'm not going to be graphic next week. I'm not going to be graphic. I'm not going to say things that I would feel uncomfortable with my six-year-old or nine-year-old hearing. Now, that being said, parents, if you have not been talking about sexuality with your children, you better get on it. (laughs) 
Okay? They, they live in an incredibly sensual culture. Sensuality is everywhere. Sexuality is everywhere. Homosexuality is everywhere. Okay? It's on TV. It's in advertisements. You want to take them on a vacation to a major city? They're going to see things that pop their eyes. Okay? So parents, one of the things I'll do next week is I'll give you some resources, some, some things that you can use to discuss with your children at each age level or each maturity level. What's appropriate for them to hear? Okay? Because you do need to be having these conversations with them so they will understand how God made them and what God made them for. And what did God give them a body for? Okay. So again, this is your heads up, your warning. If you don't feel comfortable, that will not hurt my feelings at all. If you don't want your kids in here. Because you don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to say exactly. So you can't. But I'm not going to be graphic. Okay. But this is such an enormous issue in our culture. We can't avoid it. We have to, we have to think through. What is a biblical response to this issue? Okay. So that's all I'm going to say about it today. Third Part of this downward spiral is the corruption of society. Sin reaches not just into the individual, but throughout all of relationships. Verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, that is, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the culture we live in. And if you'll notice, most of those sins that are listed there are are interrelational. They're, They're sins that we commit against one another unloving, untrustworthy, ungrateful, gossips, slanders, disobedient to parents, hateful, revilers. They are relational sins. And when sin takes root in individuals, it begins to take root in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their whole communities, in entire cultures. Entire cultures get wrapped up in this. Our rejection of God and his righteousness affects all of our human relationships as well. When we are walking in sin, we will not have good relationships with others. It's just a fact. Again, think back to the garden. Adam and Eve said, no, God, we're God, and we're not grateful for all that you have provided. So God takes them out of the garden. And what's the very next sin that's recorded? A little white lie? No, it's murder, (laughs) right? A brother kills his brother. We go from the garden to murder. A relational sin. There's hatred. There's jealousy. There's enmity. There's strife. There's not thankfulness. There's not letting God be God. Okay? So let me summarize. This is what the downward spiral looks like. First, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So God gave them over. The result, they became blind toward God. They had to worship something. So they worshipped idols, they worshipped themselves, they worshipped all kinds of false things. Literally in Hebrew, uh, an idol is a lie. They worshipped lies. They exchanged the natural function, so God gave them over. The result, blindness towards self. Who am I, really? A lot of people don't know. They disregarded the knowledge of God, so God gave them over. The result, Blindness toward others. Humanity is a family and we should be loving and caring for one another. Instead, we destroy one another. And there's wars. 
and arguments and everything in between. That's a really heavy message. How do we apply it? Let me give you three thoughts. First, look inward. Maybe you did see yourself in that list somewhere. Maybe especially as you looked at the very end of that list. It's pretty comprehensive. Maybe God is saying to you this morning, I'm I'm pointing out sin and I want you to turn from it. I want you to stop saying yes to yourself and to sin and I want you to say yes to me. And if you don't know how to put life in order, to put God on on the throne and let God be God, then let me encourage you, uh, run to find another believer, maybe who's a little bit more mature and can help you walk through this process. If you don't know any other believers well, who, who are a little further down the journey of walking with God, putting God at the very center of life, then call the office, call the staff, and let us help you find someone who can help you begin this process. We're going to talk a lot about how this works out in our lives as we get later on in Romans, but I don't want you to wait. Okay, if God is convicting you today, confess the sin to him and find help to move forward. Okay? Second application, look outward. You may have friends or family who are, are deceived by sin, as the Bible describes it. And maybe they are totally caught up in sin. There's one who sits on a throne. His name is God. It's not you. Nor is it me. I'm not on that throne. It's not our role right now in this current life to be the ones who judge. It is ours to reach out in compassion to those who are sinning and to help rescue them, to throw them a rope. That does not mean that we ignore sin. Part of reaching out in compassion and love is calling sin, sin. Not pretending that it doesn't exist. But it's not our job to cast judgment on the person, to pronounce the final final verdict, or the consequences that should happen in their life. That is God's business. Our business is to reach out in love and compassion. This is how Christ lived. Christ was, was constantly berated because he was too close to sinners. Sinners sin. Don't be surprised. But get close. Jesus was not affected by their sin. He was not drugged down by them. But he was able to reach into their lives and pull them up. And so he was constantly with sinners. Because that's why he came. To rescue them. To get them out of the raging river. To throw them a rope. So you see someone who is caught up and bound by sin. Friend or family member. Reach out in compassion and truth. And draw them back toward Christ. Third. Look on creation. Look on creation. Got an assignment this week that is get out of your house or get out of your office and take a walk. Best things for my spiritual life is when I get up out of my office and I walk. If you drive by the church, you may see me walking in that field or walking through that neighborhood because I get caught up in my own circumstances and I get frustrated or I I get uh, fearful or discouraged or whatever. And I get up and I start to walk. And as I do, I begin to worship. I say, thank you, God. Sometimes it takes me a while to get warmed up into my worship. Sometimes I'm, I'm so caught up in my own circumstances that I can't think of anything to give him thanks for. So I'll tell you, my mind, where I start is I say, thank you, God, that there's color. Thank you that the world isn't black and white. You've made the trees green and the grass brown. <laughs> but it should be green, and it will be again. 
And you've made butterflies and all the variety and the creativity and the intelligence. And I go, wow, God. And I begin to look up at the skies. I think, gosh, if I could count the stars, they would be beyond number. And your thoughts toward me are even greater. And it changes my entire perspective. And it gets me off of my little world and onto the greatness of God. And so you have an assignment this week. And that is just walk and see how God has revealed himself in nature and give him thanks for that. And say, God, you are God and I am not. And I give you thanks for all that I have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a good God and that you have chosen not to hide, but to reveal yourself and reveal yourself plainly and clearly. I pray for each of us this week that you would pull our minds, our thoughts off of our own small worlds, the idols that we worship, the sin that may have entangled us, and you'd lift our eyes to you. Father, I pray that you would give us opportunity to share the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. Sin is is dark and it's deep, but the gospel of your son is so much more powerful. And there is no sin that is so dark or deep that you cannot rescue us from it. I thank you that the power of the cross of Jesus Christ is supreme. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.